Welcome to The Bridgehead with Jonathan Van Maren, bringing you cutting-edge news, commentary, and interviews from the front lines of the culture wars. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to The Bridgehead on AM 1380 at 3 o'clock p.m. We're so glad you could join us for another installment of our series on children's literature. Now, of course, as I mentioned before, the reason we're doing this series is because I had a, I had a number of different interviews lined up on some very serious topics like uh, sex trafficking and some of the cultural issues that we deal with on the show all the time. But I figured that over the Christmas holidays, we should instead be talking about the good side of art. And children's literature seemed like a, a really fun thing to be discussing. And fun is a pretty good way to characterize the next guest, because Gordon Corman is a hilarious writer uh, who started off actually writing at age 12 with a book called This Can't Be Happening at McDonald Hall. And I remember reading that book uh, when I was in, I think, grade six or seven, and when I got to the back of the book, seeing a picture of a kid younger than I, I was who had actually written this book uh, for an English project. And from those books, he wrote a number of other books uh, about McDonald Hall, which was a boarding school in Toronto, Canada. So, of course, the places uh, were much more familiar to me as a Canadian kid than a lot of the adventure stories or the boarding school books uh, that were set in Great Britain, as most of them were at those times. Uh, but Gordon Corman had an incredibly uncanny ability to write situations in, in an absolutely hilarious way. And he carried that through all of his writing. And he actually branched out eventually into doing adventure novels as well. He did uh, a series, a trilogy called Dive, another one called Everest, another one called Island. And those are really quite powerfully and, and brilliantly written. But every once in a while, his uh, signature humor style comes through and, and you'll catch yourself laughing when you're reading a book uh, that you didn't expect that to take place in at all. And this is translated over into big success for him. Now, he grew up in Canada, but he now lives in New York City. And he's written more than 85 books. And those books have sold more than 17 million copies. That, that means, especially by the standard of a, of a children's author, he is fabulously uh, successful in terms of having an audience that obviously has a lot of loyalty to the Corman brand and comes back and buys his books over and over and over again. So I phoned Gordon Corman in New York City, and we had a great conversation about children's literature and, and how he got started off in writing and uh, where he hopes to continue in his career. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. I'm going to start off with the question that you've, you've probably heard a hundred times, but you started writing, if I'm not mistaken, when you were 13, right, in grade 7? Right. Well, I mean, the way it worked was uh, you, you hear different numbers, but I was actually 12 when I wrote the book. I was 13 when I signed the contract for it, and I was 14 by the time it came out. Right. So it's kind of like you wrote it when you were 12, you were you know, under contract at 13. Basically, I wrote it in grade 7, um, sent it in over the summer, heard back and signed it up in grade 8, and it came out when I was in grade 9. Because uh, I remember when I was in grade 7, I had a first edition copy of, of This Can't Be Happening at McDonald Hall, and when I got to the end, I saw your picture, and I said, I think he's my age. And it completely stunned yeah, me. Yeah, exactly. Uh, what was the reaction yeah, of no, your, I, your class and your family for, for writing a book that, that really took off because it became the basis of a whole series at that age? Well, I mean, I think my parents were, um, 
were obviously pleased and, and, and very, very supportive. At the same time, they were a little bit apprehensive just because, you know, there was some kind of like media attention of me kind of as a curiosity. Right. You know, most notably, the National Enquirer did a, uh, did a profile. <laughs> okay. So we were kind of afraid of, and I, actually, they, credit to them, they, they did a very like understated and, and, and supportive and, and very acute profile, but we were afraid of, you know, cosmic radiation causes kids to write books. So, right. um, so my parents were a little bit protective, you know, mm-hmm. um, but we were all thrilled. I mean, uh, I, I think when I wrote it, you know, and w- went through that whole process as a, as a middle school kid, like, I don't think I had a sense uh, of just how weird it was. You right. know, it's only now that I've been publishing for a really long time that right. I understand just how, how lucky and fluky and random that was back then. Well, how did you, as somebody who started writing this when you were you were twelve, manage to write a book that resonated with teenagers even much older than yourself? Like, where did these ideas come from? Did you read other books, say about boarding schools and things like that, like you know the British books by Annie Blyton or something that gave you the ideas, or you just came upon the idea? I think so. Well, I, I don't think I read Enid Blyton, but I read a lot of um, I read a lot of uh, British boarding school lit, you know, and uh, I, you know. Uh, I don't know if maybe Miss Scrimmage's school was kind of inspired by St. Trinian's. And, and, you know, I'd read, like, a lot of either American prep school books or, or British boarding school books. Um, and I guess McDonald Hall was a, a kind of a mixture of all of those. I mean, I never went to a boarding school. I, I actually, um, for me, I just didn't want to have to worry about, you know, parents and brothers and sisters and pet chihuahuas. And it seemed like a great way to keep it simple and contained. Right. Um, but but uh, but I, I was a reader, and I was pretty good at um, just kind of making stuff up. You, you know, uh, not that I'm a pathological liar, but uh, <laughs> I'm an only child. And when I when I grew up, there weren't a ton of other kids in the house, so um, making stuff up was it was a great way to kind of keep myself entertained. And uh, and and so by the time seventh grade came along, I was actually pretty experienced at it. Well, and how did this this series sort of end up, uh, you know, translating over to an American audience as well? Because I know that I've, I've heard you on the CBC before and a lot of Canadian radio stations. Because of course you got you got your start here. Your first books were were based in Toronto. If you know if you are Canadian, you recognize a lot of things in those books that are immediately familiar to somebody. Um, just because we're Canadian, how did those books end up, you know, translating on, on both sides of the border without you ever really getting pigeonholed as a specifically Canadian author, say like Gene Little or Kit Pearson? A lot of these, you know, very talented authors are are very much known as Canadian authors, whereas your work has sort of spanned both sides of the border. Well, I think for for the longest time, you know, it, it really took me a long time to kind of um, reach the point where my where my books were as well known in, in the United States as they were in Canada. So I. I was, you know, kind of in that same situation for a very long time. I mean, I think McDonald Hall probably never got there, right? I don't think American kids know McDonald Hall the way Canadian kids do. Right. But uh, I, I think what happened for me, the, the way it worked out for me, was when I started writing the adventure trilogies, you know, like mm-hmm. Island and Everest and Dive, um, those were, uh, they did well in Canada too, but they were just a big hit here. And that was almost like a reintroduction to the U.S. audience as like a, as as someone who was sort of starting over, you know, and then I kind of went on from there. 
I don't think that my books have ever done as well in the UK as they've done in North America. Mm -hmm. And I, I think I've got a decent audience, you know, Australia, New Zealand, and international. Well, I was going to ask you about the adventure trilogies, because for the longest time, like when I grew up, I, I, I read, uh, you know, all the McDonald Hall books is what I started with, and then I, I Want to Go Home, and um, No Coins, Please, and all those kinds of books. And then when the adventure trilogies came out, um, I think I, like a lot of other kids, bought them because, you know, you wrote them and they were going to be hilarious. And we were kind of caught off guard. And they were. They, well, in some way, they were and they weren't. I remember, like, this is a really serious story, and you'd get totally engrossed in, in The Island was the first trilogy I read, and you'd be really engrossed in, in the series because it, there was a lot of very high drama there, and then every once in a while somebody would say something that would crack you up. But as, a, as opposed to being a humorous book, that was more comic relief in various serious situations. How did you make that jump from 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 writing books um, that that people read, quite frankly, because they found them so funny, to writing these adventure trilogies. Well, I mean, that was probably the biggest the, the biggest adjustment I I've ever made in in my career. Um, it's been the most rewarding too, because um, because even now when I write something funny, just having been through the experience of sort of ratcheting up the stakes the way I did, you know, with Island and Everest and 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 those books. Um, has made me a better writer in, in, in that way too, um, but I think it was just a change of pace. You, you know, um, when when you write, when you feel too much in a comfort zone, I, I think at a certain point you lose something. You know, and and I almost feel like whenever I sit down with an idea, and the first thought in my head is, okay, I've got this. You know, it, it's usually time to try something different. Um, you always want to write with a little bit of fear that you can't quite do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of my, my best experiences writing have, have come from that. You know, I wrote all these funny books to begin with, and writing Island, suddenly, you know, you don't have comic payoffs, and, and you're, you're worrying more about research and, and mm-hmm. those kinds of things than, than just sort of experience or, or, you know, straight out making it up. Um, but even when I did the Titanic trilogy, you know, suddenly I'm out of the comfort zone of, like, the present day. Right. Writing in a different time. Or when I did uh, Books in the 39 Clues series, which was multi-author, that was, like, a really, really different experience. So um, I feel like you really do have to challenge yourself and deliberately throw yourself off guard in order to just keep yourself fresh. Yeah, in some ways, uh, it's interesting. A children's author writing for a children's audience, um, there's massive payoff uh, because the audiences are extraordinarily loyal and extraordinarily fickle. If they read a book that they love, they're going to read your book 25 times. And if they don't like your book, they're going to make it through a chapter and they're going to stop reading it and never pick it up again. How do you think that you know writing for children has sort of shaped the way you write your stories? Because you know I hear a lot of back and forth. I had a discussion uh, about this with actually uh, author Gene Little, where um, I, I thought that actually writing for children is probably even harder than writing for adults. Because you know a lot of adults are going to say, well, this is on the bestseller list. You know, Heather at Chapters recommended this. You know, the New York Times reviewed this well, so I'm going to hammer through this book and I'll pretend I like it, even if I find it excruciatingly boring. Whereas kids are far more honest. They're not going to read something that bores them. So how do you find you know? Writing, writing for children to be a challenge, or does it just come naturally? Well, I mean, I, I, when I started, I, I really didn't think of audience at all, because I didn't think of publishing at all. I was just trying to not flunk grade 7 English. <laughs> right. um, obviously, you know, as 
time goes on and you meet your readers and you get letters from readers and you know eventually the technology changes and you're getting tweeted by your readers um you know you you start to think about them a little bit more but i love the fact that kids are an honest audience you know um i um i almost feel like i have um like an imaginary friend when I'm writing, which is the imaginary friend is really more like an imaginary heckler, you know. Yeah. He's kind of like a kid <laughs> in grade five or six, and he's usually a boy, and he's just like he's an okay reader, but it's not his number one choice. You know, there's plenty of video games to be played and, mm-hmm. and you know YouTube to be watched. Uh, so I sort of feel like I have to earn his attention every step of the way. And as I'm writing, he's sort of looking over my shoulder saying things like, who cares, you know, or, or that's not exciting enough, or, you right. know, you're losing me here. And, um, y- you know, obviously it's a challenge, um, but but I think it's it's the ultimate challenge, you know. And I think one of the one of the things that's been great about my career, I would say over the last, I don't know, decade or decade and a half, is the emergence of, like, the old fans who are, I guess, you know, people like you who picked up my books at a fairly young age mm-hmm. and now kind of remember them and are reintroducing them to their kids and, and you know, their teachers and they're, you know, introducing them to their students. And that's awesome for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that I'm amazed at the amount of loyalty that um, that – readers have to the books they loved when they were in those middle grades. Right. You know, like yeah. these days in publishing, probably books for teens are, are a little bit sexier and, and, and hotter than, than books for um, than, than books for middle graders. Mm-hmm. But I still think that those middle grade years are the times when you you first become in charge of your own opinion, right? Absolutely. Like you decide what you like and what you don't. And uh, and I think that the choices that you make at that time in your life stick with you, you know, through adulthood and, and remain always special. Yeah, that's very true. And, and and you bring up something else that I wanted to ask you. You know, there was recent statistics that came out here in Canada that said your average, uh, your average kid, middle school kid, or and, and younger spends about six hours of screen time a day, which is an incredible amount of screen time. Which is, of course, time. That's not being spent uh, writing books. And do you find that you have to compete with YouTube and, and all these different things? And then even with, with book series, right, they, they have what I, I call, you know, franchise series, which is, uh, you know, um, the Divergent series, the Hunger Games, Twilight, all of these things, which, you know, have all been made into these, you know, blockbuster Hollywood films. So the books, to some degree, almost accompany the films, because a lot of people end up going back to the books after seeing the movies. Do you feel like um, in a sort of more sensationalist atmosphere and in an area where, you know, they can't even make a TV show that's longer than 20 minutes now because of people's attention span, that it's harder to capture kids and get them to sit down and actually hammer through a book? Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, one thing about having having been doing this for a really long time is, uh, you you know, I I remember in the 80s, you know, people were like, well, kids don't read anymore, Mm -hmm. or kids don't read like they used to. I I believe they read, you know, as much, if not more, than they used to. Mm -hmm. And then also, I mean, I remember in in the uh, the 80s, in the early 90s, you know, the, the paradigm that everyone accepted was like, the books that are going to get the biggest are going to be 
the easiest to read, the skinniest, and the least expensive, right? right. Think Sweet Valley High and the Babysitter's Club and right. you know, the early Goosebumps books and stuff like that. And then, you know, suddenly look at the books that are um, – that are the mo- that are on the bestseller list today. They uh, they're, they're huge, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, divergent. Those books are like seven hundred pages long. Yep. Um, so, I mean, there's always that kind of an analysis, right? I mean, you know, my my own kids would probably rather be on YouTube than reading my own book. So, so obviously, I see it in my own house every single day. But you know, when Harry Potter first came out and became so huge, everyone was like. Uh, kids' books are dead. All anyone's going to read is Harry Potter. And that proves to be the exact opposite. You know, that was like the rising tide that lifts all boats. Right? More kids were in the books. Uh, more kids were buying books and tackling books that were thicker and, and, uh, and heavier. They were buying books in hardcover. They were buying books that were expensive. Um, you know, it, it, it changed the our industry for the better in, in a million different ways. So, um, you know, I mean, I, I understand all the arguments, mm-hmm. and you can find, any parent can find a million instances of when a kid put down a book in favor of a video game or, you know, video videos on YouTube or something like that. But in the end, I don't think it's really changed anything. If, if anything, the kids' book business has gotten better. Well, that's that's really encouraging. And one of the things I was going to say, you live in New York now, don't you? Uh, yeah, Long Island, just outside New York. And you originally grew up in the Toronto area? Right, well, I was born in Montreal, mm-hmm. and um, we lived there till I was about seven, and, and then we moved to the Toronto area. And I was in Toronto and the suburbs until, uh, until I went to university. Okay. And that's what first brought me to New York. I see. Okay. And do you find that, you know, New York is, is a good place for publishing as well? Do you still work with a lot of Canadian publishers or American publishers? Well, both. I mean, I have a, an amazing relationship with, um, with Scholastic Canada mm-hmm. because they were the guys who first kind of found me, right? Like when I, when I wrote that um, seventh grade English project turned into This Can't Be Happening at McDonald Hall, um, I sent it to Scholastic, and, and the reason was basically I was the class monitor for Arrow book orders. You know? right. so I'm thinking I'm practically an employee of these guys already. And I still publish with, with Scholastic Canada. So, um, so even though you know, I, I'm having my books you know, kind of initially, you, you know, initially published with Scholastic's New York office, kind of attention from Scholastic Canada like they have just been really really committed to me and I've been really really committed to them because we go back uh really almost 40 years right like yeah. I signed my first contract with them in 1976 so right. it's been like 39 years since that you know sit down with Scholastic Canada to sign sign the first contract um but New York is 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 really the you know the U.S. publishing capital, the way Toronto is the Canadian one. Right. So, um, so I can publish with, you know, um, with Scholastic in New York here, and at the same time publish with Scholastic Canada, you know, up in Toronto. And I also have um, just recently done a series called Masterminds, which in Canada is being published by Harper in Canada, yeah. which is an awesome group. Um, 
the first time that I've had. Uh, I've published with Harper U.S. before, but I've I've not had an experience with the Canadian Harper. And you know, they I mean are just a powerhouse up there. I mean, with you know people like Kenneth Opal and, and you know an amazing list of of Canadian authors. My little sister is actually reading that series right now. I just saw when I went home. <laughs> oh, cool, cool. What's your favorite series? I think this is the one thing that I'm most interested to ask every author I talk to. Is you, you've got a lot of work, um, you've written dozens of books now. Do you still, you know, are do you hold loyalty to sort of the, like the last series that you've written, that's the newest and freshest, or or do you still have a you know a, a place in your heart for the books you wrote first? No, I do. I, I tend to be the most excited about what's what's newest and 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 what's current. Not because it's better. It's just sort of what's what I'm writing now, and it, it's kind of funny because, um, you know, my own kids have gone through my books, and generally they're um, they're fans of what's big at the time, right? So, you, you know, my old son who's in high school now, he was like a big fan of like you know the On the Run series and and um, and like uh, slap shots, and and uh, my daughter was really into you know stuff in the middle, but no more dead dogs in mm-hmm. school. But my youngest, who is in grade five right now, he became a McDonald Hall fan. He was like, oh, I want to read the, you know, the books that you started with. And so rereading the, the early McDonald Hall books with him was really cool, but oddly weird because they almost felt like books I read as a kid rather right. than books that I wrote. You know, I mean, I, I remembered them, but I, I didn't have like a direct connection to putting I mean, in that case, literally pen to paper and writing those books. Well, and what's it like to write children's books and have a family of your own now? Because you wrote the first few books in high school, and then you've been writing ever since. And, and do you find that your kids are your toughest audience? No, my kids don't tend not to to read stuff while it's being written. Like, you know, they um, even, uh, you know, my youngest also is a, a big Swindle fan, you know. Right. And I was like, well, I've got the new Swindle. We can, you know, just... Uh, put it up on your iPad and we can read it before anybody else. He was like, no, <laughs> until it comes out for real, it's not, it's not real. And, uh, he doesn't want to have an interest in it. So I'm not getting, I'm not getting sort of real time reactions from them, but it, it, it's really, I mean, it's, it's been very nice, like to watch each of my kids kind of go through the, the sort of sweet spot of the demographic of kids reading my books. Yeah. So, what do you think uh, is next for your career? You've, you've you've sort of transformed yourself a number of times. You've gone from McDonald Hall to books, you know, that are that are very much based around humor, right? No, no coins, please. Well, don't care. High son of Interflux, and then you've moved on to adventure series, and you're trying all sorts of new different things. How do you see your career progressing? Are you just going to sort of take it as it comes and and write whatever stories uh, you come up with? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, right now, I, I've been writing a lot of series lately, you, yeah. you know, um, because I've had, um, I mean, Swindle is still going on. The Hypnotist just finished, like the third book of that, The Dragonfly Effect, just came out. And Masterminds, I'm in the middle of, right? So whenever you, uh, oh, and I, I, was, I was up until last year, like still very current in 39 Clues, because I did Flashpoint, which is the last book of the Unstoppable series. So when people ask me what's going on, I'd be like, well, Hypnotist 3, Masterminds 1, Swindle 7, you know, 39 Clues, Series 3, Book 4. And everything sort of seemed like these series and these numbers. And I sort of felt like what I wanted to do was go back to writing 
just like standalone novels for right. a while. You, you know, not having everything be part of some kind of uh, of a series. So that's kind of what I'm what I'm focused on now. I, I wouldn't say it's a a radical transformation, mm-hmm. but it's just kind of like a a um, almost like a reboot of uh, of what I've been doing, you know, for all these years. Ever thought of writing a book for adults? You know, it's funny. I thought about that a long time ago, you know, because um, I started writing young, and when I got a little bit older, I started writing books that were a little bit older, mm-hmm. like Don't Care High and Son of Interflux and Life of a Garbage Bag. So I thought it would be a natural progression that, you know, as I got older, I would just write older, and it really hasn't worked out that way at all. But to be honest with you, I, I love writing for kids. I don't have any sort of urgent need to write for adults. I, I don't think there's anything that I want to say that I can't put in a, a book for kids, or certainly a book for teens if I, mm-hmm. if I want to go that route, because I have done a number of books that, that are for like a slightly older audience. Okay, one final question, just because I know that I wondered this growing up, and I know a lot of other people do, is the the idea of being a writer seems to be somewhat of a romantic profession. You know, you you kind of you work from your computer with pen and paper, and you do your own thing. So what does your schedule look like when you're writing books? Like, what does one of your days as a writer look like? Well, I mean, you know, I guess I have the freedom to do whatever whatever I want in, in terms of you know I don't have any like concrete obligations to be in a certain place at a certain time. But in the end, you know, I have a family, you know, and it, it makes sense for me to at least conform to their schedule a little bit. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as I mentioned, I have three kids. The youngest, his bus picks him up at like 8.45. So I put him on the bus every morning, go home, you know, and, and start writing probably around 9.30 or 10. I work all day. I mean, it's not all writing, but, I mean, it's all stuff I have to do, you know, for my job. Uh, and I'm rarely done before dinner time, you know, before six. So it, it's a pretty full-time gig, you know. Obviously, well, I travel a fair bit, like, to mm-hmm. promote and, and uh, present at, like, libraries and schools and, and conferences and that kind of stuff. So that that throws that off a little bit. But for the most part, it's very much like a full-time job. You know, I, I have an office at home. My kids don't usually disturb me while while I'm in here working. So I might as well be, you know, getting up in the morning, taking a train someplace, and, and being at work all day. All right, well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Oh, absolutely. This is great. Ladies and gentlemen, that was children's author Gordon Corman, a hilarious writer who started writing at age 12. And he joined us from New York City to discuss uh, his work, his writing, and uh, where he hopes to go from here. So we hope you enjoyed that conversation. There will be one more episode in our series on children's literature coming up on January the 7th, and we hope you'll join us again then. Thanks so much, and have a great weekend.